Just after World War II in the late 40s, a um, warship was underway in Chesapeake Bay in the evening. And a young junior lieutenant was standing watch. And the captain had retired to his underway stateroom, leaving the young man in command of the ship. And everything was going pretty well until there was that sudden, just awful, heart-stopping, career-ending moment when the ship quit moving. It just stopped, rocked a little bit as the bow dug in. They had gone aground. And the young man was just opening his mouth to say something when the captain burst onto the bridge and began giving orders. I have the con. Quartermaster, what's your heading? Very well. Rudder amidships. Engines back one-third. Messenger, pipe damage control to the bridge on the double, and quartermaster, get me a round of bearings. And back came the answering uh, orders. Aye, sir. Midships, engines back one, DC to the bridge, round of bearings, sir. Well, out on the bridge wings, Allidades began to swing to line up with a church steeple and a lighthouse and some other shore-side object illuminated in the evening lights. And those lines of bearing were brought in and laid down on the chart, and bingo, there you had it, a perfect three-line cross right over that notation on the chart that said, Danger, Shoalwater. And the captain turned to the young officer and he said, Mister, having ruined your career and probably mine, I have a question for you. Were you surprised? Yes, sir. And he said, well, then I have another question. Why? It was right there on the chart. Now, a few months ago at Dan Houghton's church in Southern California, I did a weekend series on the economy, and I told that story, and I haven't seen the DVD yet. The people tell me there's one out there. So if perchance you've seen that DVD, you'll recognize that I've told that story before. I told it again for a very simple reason. At Dan Houghton's church, and by the way, thank the Lord for Dan Houghton and his family. Aren't they wonderful people? The good they have done for ASI and for the Adventist church is just incalculable. And I think the highest praise we could pray them, uh, pay to them is that they've raised two wonderful sons who are faithful to the Advent message. You can't say more than that. Well, in any event, at his church I told this story, but I didn't tell it all because I had to save something for ASI. <laughs> so here I'm going to finish the story by asking the $64 billion question. Why did that young officer run aground? He had a chart. He had a compass. He had a seaman apprentice at the helm following orders. What's missing? Well, let me explain it to you. Because the mistake he made is one we could make, both spiritually and prophetically. Very insidious, very dangerous, very easy to make. And it's a nautical problem that's defined by a very simple word called set, S-E-T. And here's how it works. You know your vessel's position. You know where you want to go. You want to get to that dock on the shore. So you plot your position. You lay down a compass course direct for that dock. And theoretically, you're going to get there, correct? Amen. Except that in the medium in which you float, there is a sideways current due to an ebbing tide or a flood tide or just a perennial uh, equatorial current, wherever it might be. So that as you steer a perfect compass course toward the horizon, or toward the object which you want to reach, your vessel very gradually and imperceptibly 
does this. And now let's change colors just for the high drama of the moment. Right here was the spot on the chart marked Danger Shoal Water. This can happen. Happened to on a vessel I was stationed on. The XO full commander uh, had failed to take into consideration an ebbing tide, and as we pulled in to dock, we used a wooden minesweeper as a fender. We were a full steam-powered warship with five-inch guns mounted, and when we brushed up against that little piece of United States Navy property called a minesweeper, you could hear crunch, 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 crunch as the timbers began caving in. The captain of the minesweeper was running down the dock before we had the first line aboard. This is no joke. It can happen to you, okay? Now, what's the lesson for us here? There are forces deep in the medium that carries us, be it water or human events, that suddenly, uh, subtly move us in a direction we don't perceive until it's too late. We think perhaps we have the end time all figured out. Ignoring to factor into the equation, Lucifer is not stupid. He's read the prophecies too. He knows them at least as well as we do and just maybe better. And Lucifer is capable of engineering deep currents that move us off course, even when we think we know where we are and where we're headed. Now, what's the remedy? At a time of unparalleled world complexity where it is very obvious Congress doesn't understand what's going on, very obvious the White House is struggling with it, very obvious that the Kremlin doesn't have a clue, nor does the Politburo in Beijing, how do we handle it? How do we relate to the world we live in? Let me give you a very simple, perhaps facially naive answer that we might want to think about and take seriously. We need implicit faith in prophetic guidance, Amen. even when we can't see the reason for it. Now, let me give you an example. In recent years, it's been popular among folk who style themselves as progressive thinkers whatever that may mean, to relegate Ellen White to harmless oblivion, either from the need for career preservation or just political necessity. It's often done by condemning her with faint praise. Bless her heart. She meant well. She wrote some wonderful devotional literature. But after all, we are moving into the 21st century. She was stuck in the 19th. And in so saying, we set ourselves up for that imperceptible sideways drift toward problems and obstacles we cannot foresee and none of us could expect but a prophet could see because in holy vision they foresaw the problem. And here's a perfect example of that. You disparage a prophet at your peril. Long ago, Ellen White gave some advice, hard to understand. I mean, it, it seems even counterintuitive to what she had said heretofore. She said, with respect to labor unions, brethren stay out of them. Now, why? <laughs> I mean, back in the era when she said that, huge fortunes were being made and spent by a very few wealthy families. Great business trusts were combining to put in the hands of a very few people control over enormous quanta 
of our economic output in this country. And the workers who enabled all of that wealth were underpaid, uncared for, living in grinding poverty. And Ellen White condemned it. You see, America was just recovering from the nightmare of slavery. And when you let a demon like that loose in your society, you, into your collective national life, you also set in motion forces where sooner or later everybody is imperiled and everybody is capable of suffering. And so it was in the era of big business combining and the worker suffering very badly in America. Ellen White roundly condemned it. Adventism has always been very stoutly aware of and concerned about civil and constitutional rights. And well, we should be. Are you aware that the early Adventist pioneers, the Millerites, almost to a person were ardent abolitionists? We recognize that when anybody in our society suffers, the Constitution is imperiled because the Constitution's function is what? To protect the minority from the majority. And God help us if we ever lose that that value in this country. So Ellen White said, in a time when she would otherwise have supported the rights and plight of the working people, with, union, with respect to unions, she said, stay out of them. And she gave a reason. She said, they will bring on a time of trouble such as the world has never seen. Well, now in the 1980s, when a lot of people were trying to rewrite Adventism, it was very easy to say, Ellen White, labor union, give me a break. They're in terminal decline. And they seem to be because President Reagan, among other things, had decimated the air traffic controllers union. And they seem to be recessive in our society. But deep beneath the surface, down there where Ellen White's critics didn't have the insight to look, powerful forces were at play that would, in the horrific autumn of the 21st century, change America in ways to where we probably will never be the same again. Massive forces were pushing us off course, off the course we thought we were steering. And, and, and the reason for this was pretty simple. The United States was systematically pricing itself out of the world marketplace. It happened first, quite frankly, with a merchant marine. I mean, from the awesome fleets of thousands of merchant vessels that we had on the high seas during World War II, by the mid-1950s, you could travel the world and very seldom see an American flagship. You would see plenty of American-owned ships with a Panamanian or Liberian flag on the stern, the simple reason being that the owners of those vessels just didn't feel they wanted to pay the price it cost to flag the ship as American. So we began to lose our maritime power first, but shortly thereafter, we began to lose what? The steel industry. It began to recede into offshore suppliers, and we developed in this country a deepening economic recession in what we now call the Rust Belt. Hard on the heels of that, automobiles. As hardworking, capable, conscientious Asians began to turn out vehicles at a lesser price, and when you drove them off the dealer's lot, everything worked. <laughs> Soon thereafter, high-tech stuff like televisions, like computers, 
like appliances, like tools, like household goods, went to Japan, Taiwan, Korea, Singapore, India, and then this great Asian giant, China, began to wake up. Little by little, our industries were going offshore. Well, back then, at first, the experts soothed us with the assurance, hey, that's no big deal. We aren't a manufacturing economy anymore. We are a service economy. We provide intellectual property to the world. We provide services to the world. That's what we do. We're way beyond the era of blast furnaces and heavy hammers shaping automobile parts and appliances. But then guess what happened? Our services began going offshore. How many of you recently, not, not a show of hands, but just reflective on this uh, issue, have you bought a computer or a TV or something that you needed a little technical advice on? You took it out of the box and it didn't quite work right, and somewhere buried in the owner's manual was this 800 number you're supposed to call. You call it up, you listen to 12, 15 minutes of elevator music, and finally a voice comes on the line. Good morning. My name is Sam. What is your customer number? Well, you ain't talking to Sam. His name is Sandeep. And you're not talking to Cincinnati, you're talking to Calcutta. Okay? Our services begin to go offshore little by little. Once everything was made in America, now try to find anything made in America. And as America offloaded the goods and services that she had always heretofore furnished the world, something else was happening. The nations of the world, increasingly capable, increasingly competitive, increasingly productive, were beginning to knit something called the global economy. In military literature, in uh, Naval Institute proceedings, to which I subscribed for years as a reserve officer, there began to be more and more talk about globalization. That was the buzzword coming out of DOD and the Pentagon. What we have to address is globalization. What they meant was the globe was unifying into a fabric of a global economy, and that affected our entire perception of what our military should be doing by way of force projection and protection of a growing world economy. Something was happening. The world was globalizing economically. Now, let me stop right here. Please don't misunderstand me. I am not saying that the cause of the strange crisis in which we find ourselves today is labor unions. That kind of oversimplification is just not, not fit for anything like the intelligent, educated mind. There is no single factor that has contributed to this thing. All I'm saying is that that's one of many factors as America offloaded all of the things and services we used to make and do, we began to engender a global economy that set the stage for other events to then cascade into the mess we find ourselves in today. What I'm really trying to say is simply this. When a prophet speaks, listen, Amen. because he or she will have seen and understood things we don't immediately see and understand. And the thing with labor unions is amply illustrated by this particular point. When a prophet speaks, there may be more 
than meets the eye. Okay, the U.S. was in the process of exporting industry, services, and jobs. Meanwhile, global economic giants were rising together with a growing global economy. And they were stitching it together into something that was becoming a unified whole. Now watch the pieces of this puzzle come together. On September 18, 2008, the Secretary of the Treasury and the Chairman of the Federal Reserve held an emergency meeting at the U.S. Capitol. It was late in the afternoon on that September day. It was held in Nancy Pelosi's office. It was attended by senior members of Congress, both parties, both houses. And this afternoon, the chairman of the Fed had a stark message for them. He said, we need $700 billion. And I mean, not next week. We need it now. And if we don't get it, the world financial system is going into meltdown. And one of, the, uh, one of the individuals in the room said there was a pause in the room as the oxygen left. But I'm getting ahead of my story. My presentation this afternoon has two parts. Number one, how did it happen? How did we get here into this mess? And point number two, which I really would like to emphasize as being the more important point is, what are the end time implications? And how should we react to that? And what do we in ASI have to say? So point number one, how did it happen? Well, let me go to the board and erase something here because I've got to draw you another pretty picture. Once upon a time, when you went to the bank to, say, get a home loan, the transaction looked very much like this. And since we know that banks are all stable and classically uh, reliable, we put Greek pillars on the front. Uh, they used to do that. Banks typically had Greek pillars up front to just let you know how safe you were. All right, what happens here? These people need money to buy a home. The bank has money. These people over time are capable of providing income to the bank in the form of interest which the bank needs. So it is a very simple, linear, bilateral sort of transaction. This bank probably knows you. It is based in the town where you live. That bank will thoroughly vet you as to what you owe now, what your income is, how much in savings you have, what your credit history is, what your spouse may or may not do for a living. The bank will thoroughly vet you for all of this stuff, including how much money you can afford to pay down for a very simple reason. They expect to get their money back. Just that simple. Well, all of that worked for a long time very satisfactorily, but in the strange new world of the 21st century, things began to work differently because home loans were treated as a commodity. They were bundled into investment packages and now enters a third party, an investor, to whom the bank assigns your loan 
and to whom you will now pay money. So it becomes a triangular relationship, and it doesn't just happen once. Multiply that by several hundred thousand times, and you have big packages of home loan investments being sold by major investment firms to the investing public, including houses like Bear Stearns, who are buying them as an investment. No longer are we terribly worried about the financial picture of these people here for the simple reason that real estate prices are on an escalating climb. They're going stratospheric. It doesn't much matter if these people have a down payment or if they can even afford the balloon payment that, like a balloon, is straining at its tie-down rope a few years into the horizon of the future. Because land prices are rising. There's no chance of anything going wrong, is there? Even if these people can't pay, the investor can foreclose on that property and will have plenty of money, not only to recover the investment, but to probably profit at the expense of the borrowers. That's the theory. In the Neverland of soaring real estate values, it doesn't matter whether five years from now you can afford the monthly payments. Just owning real estate meant you were going to get very rich, didn't it? And so home loans became an investment traded on Wall Street. Creative whiz kids cobbled up weird new securities that even few bankers understood, including credit default swaps, by which these investors were guaranteed they couldn't lose money guaranteed by entities like AIG. You couldn't lose money, or could you? For just a moment, let's go back to the spirit of prophecy. Did Ellen White ever offer any advice with respect to speculation? Yes. Well, let me share some with you. Volume 2. Page 665. She's talking about believers who are beguiled by speculation. The prospect of getting more money fast and easily allures them. They can see no possibility of failure. Away go the means out of their hands, and they soon learn to their regret that they have made a mistake. But now notice the next statement. Satan outgeneraled them, he managed to deprive the cause of God of that which should have been used in saving souls. Do you realize how often speculation has derailed? I mean derailed spectacular opportunities for finishing the work of God. This isn't a recent thing. This has happened over and over again in the history of God's people. In 1856, there was a revival that just sprang up within Adventism. It happened because James White began preaching the Laodicean message. There's power in that message. If you, if you listen to it, if you let your mind listen, there is power in the Laodicean message. It just invigorated the church, provoked a huge revival within God's people. In the context of that revival, Ellen White in vision said, I saw heaven sending angels everywhere to prepare unbelieving hearts for truth. And she saw 
America delivered of slavery before the Civil War. That's the, that's the, the vision in which she saw the, the slaves cast off their chains, not because Abe Lincoln very, very tardily finally you know, came up with the Emancipation Proclamation. They did so at the coming of Christ. That was heaven's plan. And the revival of 1856 could have brought it about. Ellen White saw it happening, but it was a conditional prophecy. Well, what went wrong? Now, the interesting thing is that there, there were two parallel curves here. There was a great revival in Adventism, and very shortly thereafter, hard on the heels of it, there was a great revival in the non-Adventist religious world, which historians to this day cannot explain. It didn't come from, from the top down in any religious organization. It just happened. Suddenly in Boston and Philadelphia and New York and across the uh, Atlantic, merchants were closing their offices at noon and having prayer meetings. Nobody could figure out what was happening here. I wrote all about that in my book, Morning's Trumpet, in a chapter entitled, uh, When Jesus Almost Came. Uh, I'm, I regret to say there aren't any of those. Those books are sold out now, but that was my thesis. The Lord could have come before the Civil War, and that explains the vision in which Ellen White saw deliverance for the slaves happening before that time. Since that time, her critics have debunked, tried to debunk her by saying, well, she saw something that didn't happen. Yeah, so did Ezekiel. Ezekiel saw a temple that never got built. The failure was not God's. It wasn't the prophets. The failure was God's people. Then is now. Well, what happened here? This revival crested and came back down, as did the one in the world, and we crashed into this monster disaster called the Civil War that would take 600,000 lives. What caused the collapse of the revival in Adventism? Speculation. God's people suddenly discovered there were huge fortunes to be made investing in stuff like mining stock. They bought into that. They forgot all about heaven because they had it pretty good here, just like the Jews did when they made money, big money in Babylon, then would go back home to uh, Jerusalem. And so, uh, God's people bought into that stuff just in time for the financial panic of 1857, and the rest is history. Over and over again, uh, speculation and the, the allure of wealth has derailed opportunities for God's work. And on a July day in 1905 from San Jose, California, Ellen White wrote to a brother who thought he had a neat idea. He said, Sister White, I can make big money in mining stock. I can help to finish the work. And she wrote back to him, my dear brother, you have presented before me a proposition to invest in mining stock. You feel confident such an investment would prove successful and you think you will be able to help the cause of God. I am bidden to say. Now, she's not saying in my opinion, I think. This is a prophet speaking saying, I've got instructions. Well, from where? From the throne. I am bidden to say this is a device of the enemy to consume or tie up means. Then she said, I invite you to take shares in the greatest mine that has ever been worked. Okay? So on Wall Street, investors gambled that real estate prices couldn't fall. And one of the major investors in these derivatives was Bear Stearns. Now, let's watch the events of a fateful week in 2008, just one week just within the, the passage of eight days. Monday, March 10, about 11 a.m., the rumor begins to circulate that Bear Stearns is running out of cash, and all it takes on Wall Street is a rumor. That's like a bullet to the brain. 
a rumor can do it, their stock started coming down like a grand piano. Uh, stock once worth 171 bucks fell to $60. Depositors began pulling out funds. It was a classic run on the bank. Only these weren't, you know, grandma with her passbook in her sweaty hand going to draw out her, you know, $1,800 of life savings. These were billion-dollar investors. They had lost confidence in Bear Stern. By Wednesday, Goldman Sachs, Lehman's uh, major, uh, or, or Bear Stearns' major financier, began to retreat from their troubled prior customer. And worse, the nightly repo market began to rebel. Every night there are short-term investments where the investing public will overnight invest in various entities. And on that particular Wednesday night, the repo market began to give a vote of no confidence to Bear Stearns. The cash reserves dwindled, the lenders fled, and by Thursday, their stock plummeted, continued to plummet. The cash reserves were almost gone by 6 p.m. It's real clear that uh, they're not going to have enough capital to open the next morning. They had 12 to 14 hours to raise enough emergency capital to stay in business. Well, they couldn't get it from the investing public. The investing public was running from them like they had leprosy. But there's one last chance. They decided to go to the Fed. Federal Reserve Bank of New York headed by a gentleman named Timothy Geithner. They, he went to bear. The Fed went to bear, discovered hundreds, billions of, of dollars in subprime loans and hundreds of billions in these credit default swaps. Toxic as can be. You get near them, you feel like you've got to take a bath. They're just giving off toxic fumes. And the worst problem was that with these default swaps, if Bear went down, investors around the world also went down because Bear was insuring them. That was the nightmare the international house of cards that financial globalization had helped to stitch together and which now threatened uh, the world. Oh, by the way, does, it, does prophecy have anything to say about a potential global economic meltdown? Well, Revelation describes something and hints that it happens fast. Let me read two verses from Revelation 18, actually portions of three verses. Revelation 18, 11, And the merchants of the earth shall weep and mourn over her, for no man buyeth their merchandise any more. Something's gone wrong in commerce. Verse 15, The merchants which were made rich by her shall stand afar off, saying, Alas, alas, for in one hour so great riches is come to naught. And the Greek word there for one hour, the Greek word there for one hour is spelled like this. Hora. What does it mean? It's not real specific, but we know it's short. The Greek word hora basically means a, an indeterminate but very short period of time. Whatever happens, happens fast. By the way, that same word is also used in describing the time of trouble. When that happens, it happens fast too, thank God. Doesn't last long. Function of the time of trouble, I'm convinced, is just to pry our claws out of this world. We claim we want to go to heaven, but we hang on to this world with all we're worth. It's like trying to pull a cat off of a roof. He's real happy you're there until you try to lift him down the ladder, and then he grabs the roof. Well, the time of trouble takes care of that problem for us, doesn't it? So, Revelation suggests something in the economic world. So does the Apostle James. 
James suggests a time when even the most stable forms of wealth go through your fingers like rust. I mean, I'm going to read this one from the, uh, from the RSV because it just reads so clear. Come now, you rich, weep and howl. James 5, verse 1. Weep and howl, your riches have rotted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver have rusted. Now, there's something wrong in that sentence, isn't there? These metals here don't rust. Gold so chemically inert, there's almost nothing that'll react with it. Silver will form protective oxide, as you housewives know. But put those together, they don't rust. James is describing something that chemically cannot happen. He's describing something that economically cannot happen unless these could rust if the rules of chemistry changed. And this could go through your fingers like so much rust if the rules of economics didn't work so good anymore. You following me? So James talks about this and he makes it real clear it's an end time prophecy because he talks about you laying up tre treasure for the last days. Bible suggests something happens at or near the end of time. All right, let's go back now to this fateful week in 2008. At 4 a.m. on what was now a fateful Friday, Geithner called Ben Bernanke, chairman of the Fed, with news that has to have waked up Bernanke instantly because he was a student, is a student of the Great Depression. Ben Bernanke is, a, is an expert of the history of the Great Depression. And when Geithner calls him up and he says, the whole system's at risk, we're in danger of a global banking collapse. Bingo. Bernanke waked up immediately because he, of all people, would recognize the Depression was caused less by the stock market's collapse than by the collapse of the banking system. Well, that stormy day, an interesting scheme was invented. See, Bear Stearns wasn't a regulated bank, so the Fed couldn't properly loan them money. So through a clever uh, usage of the rules, the Fed decided to loan to J.P. Morgan, who was Bear's clearing bank, and thus they were indirectly lending to Bear. In so doing, they propped them up briefly, but they were also publicly admitting to the investing public that Bear was about to fail. Why else would they need uh, financial infusion from the Federal Reserve? And when, uh, when the market opened on Friday, Bear stock went into a 50% sell-off. It just collapsed. By 10 a.m., the stock that had once been 171 bucks a share was now down to 30. Now, stop and wait a second. How many people had funds in Bear? And this is not an academic problem limited to Wall Street. I mean, this is 401k money and Keogh retirement plans and Section 412 defined benefit plans. This is retirement money by average citizens. That's their security for old age. Real people are getting hurt. People of retirement years who now face the prospect there ain't going to be any retirement. Well, anyway, the feds bailed out bare, but there was a price. You know, there's always a price. When government gets involved, as I pointed out in my lecture this morning on uh, the creation of 501c3 exempt organizations, uh, when you go into any relationship where government money is or seems to be involved, even so far as exempting you from taxation, there is always a price to pay. And on Sunday morning, that price began to be obvious. The Fed arranged a forced marriage between Bayer and J.P. Morgan, funded with $30 billion of federal money. But with federal money comes what? federal control. 
And Paulson decreed that when their stock was sold in this arranged marriage, their stock, which was then still selling at $30 a share, would be sold for two bucks. Now 30% of their stock was owned by their employees. That was their retirement. That was their security. And when they got the news, not surprisingly, some of them cried. Just seven days, Bear Stern was gone. Now, once again, let's go back to the spirit of prophecy. Did Ellen White ever predict that when it happens, it'll happen fast? Volume 9, page 11, 911, famous quote. We are living in the time of the end. The fast fulfilling signs of the times declare that the coming of Christ is near at hand. Great changes are soon to take place in our world. And the final movements will be rapid ones. This much had happened in one week of 2008, but the worst was yet to come. In the summer of 2008, every major Wall Street firm was battered by housing losses approaching about a trillion bucks. You know, there was a time when a trillion dollars represented real money. Now enter the specter of Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae, or as one of my clients once said, Freddie Mae and Fannie Mac. These entities had been mandated to make some very risky loans by powerful forces in Congress in the name of social engineering. All of this was not necessarily the blame of mismanagement at management level. There's enough blame here to go around, and Congress might as well step up and accept part of it. Fannie and Freddie also collapsed. That means within two weeks, starting with the collapse of Bear Stearns, within two weeks, two of the largest companies on earth lost 60% of their stock value. Now here's where it gets dicey. These two held $5 trillion in mortgages and had been heavily invested in by the People's Republic of China who, by the way, is one of our biggest lenders. Now we're in a tight. If these two failed, the investing public recognized the uh, prototypical systemic worldwide risk that everybody's worried about, including loss of credibility of foreign lenders like the Chinese, without whose loans we could not fund our standard of living predicated on debt. Well, what was the result? <laughs> you don't have to ask, you know. The U.S. nationalized Freddie and Fannie, a foretaste of what was coming to portions of the banking industry. Now, the huge shockwave through the economy left clear implications. If the two if two of the largest companies on earth can fail, anybody can. Just that simple. And one day later, on Monday, September 8, all of this is happening just in a matter of days, the disaster spreads as Lehman Brothers, deep in the high-risk mortgage market, begins going under from similar toxic investments. Now, the butcher's bill here is going up. 
You remember back in the good old days when we lost Enron and we wring, wrung our hands over the loss of 60 billion bucks? When Lehman goes, the price is over $600 billion. And this time, a spooked Paulson, Secretary of the Treasury Paulson, said, I'm drawing the line. I can't bail everybody out. Everybody will make unwise investments and come around expecting to be bailed out. So he said, Layman, I'm just going to let them fail. And he felt that he could do so without major repercussions. Well, when Layman did fail, the markets crashed. They came down hundreds of points from the opening bell. See, what we're into now is systemic risk. The problem here now is that no bank trusts another bank, even banks in good, solid standing. Nobody's going to lend to anybody else for the simple reason they're not sure they're getting their money back. You follow the problem? So everybody freezes up. They go into a, a, a mode, basically, of protecting their assets. And about this time, something funny happens to the investment curve. And let me draw it up here for you. From 2002 to 2009, we'll cover that period of time, the level of investments with in, in uh, federal securities kind of lingered down like this. It went up and down, up and down. As we approach the crisis of late 2008, guess where money goes? It spikes like this. Money is suddenly being put into federal funds, into T-bills. Not because they're yielding much interest, they're down to almost nothing, but it's the last safe place on earth people feel they can put their money. And when you see this flight from risk, this risk aversion, this flight to quality, this flight to safety, when the curve looks like that, the investing public, including the public with billions of dollars to put into some sort of investment vehicle, you recognize you have real problems. So that's about what the curve looked like. Well, the credit markets froze, and we're not talking just mortgages, but cars, consumers, small business, even the safest banks on earth were unable to get a loan because everything had frozen. And now enter AIG, the world's largest investment company, with tens of billions of dollars in housing market investments and in credit default swaps, some of which insured investments in Freddie and Fannie, which were heavily invested in by the Chinese. What are we saying here? AIG ties to the whole world. Layman we let collapse. AIG, there's just not an option to let them collapse, at least not in the minds of Washington, D.C. There's a desperate need for cash. Credit markets are frozen. And now the panic from Layman spreads to AIG, spreads to Morgan Stanley, spreads to Goldman Sachs, spreads to the whole world. Ireland begins having financial problems. The Bank of England begins bailing out other banks in the UK. The nation of Iceland, go figure. How can you go broke in Iceland? <laughs> but they'd managed to. Whole nation went broke. In California, which is what? The 12th largest economy in the world is somewhere up in there. Well, we know what happened in California. Well, I said it wrong, California. Okay. <laughs> and even China, which had been a world dynamo, went from high growth to almost no growth. I remember a few years ago, I was attending a meeting uh, of military uh, personnel down in San Diego, and Admiral Edwards, who was then on active duty, 
uh, with the Navy, uh, just stepped around in front of the lectern, no notes, no nothing. He just stood there in front of this audience and began ticking off the ways in which China's growing economy could enable force projection in a military sense all around the world. China is a force to be reckoned with. I don't know how they fit into the end of time, but they're there and they're there big time. Uh, the Chinese people figure in some way, in a very significant way, to an end-time world. Well, even they suffer a, a recession to the point where they go from high growth to no growth, or, or at least slow growth. Now, wait a second. If China is one of the big uh, enablers of our debt-financed economy, what if they can't afford to lend to us anymore? Hold that thought, because we're coming to it in just a second. The Dow goes into freefall. On a single day, it collapses 777 points. And one commentator said this just all happened in the flash of an eye. Great changes are soon to take place in our world, and the final movements will be rapid ones. The world's now looking into the throat of a volcano, and just two days after the Lehman collapse, Geithner calls Paulson. The chairman of the Fed calls the Secretary of the Treasury, says, we got no choice. We have got to go to Congress. We've got to get this stopped. And so it was. We now come full circle back to that meeting we started with, September 18 in Nancy Pelosi's office on Capitol Hill. And Paulson is telling the assembled senior congressional leadership, unless you act, the financial system of this country and the world will melt down in a matter of days. I need $700 billion in order to buy toxic securities. <laughs> and once again, an observer said there's just a pause. The oxygen left the room. Well, the federal money came, and with it, a bailout of the banking industry. In a bill that would, uh, that would become the bailout, there were six lines of text. They were buried in hundreds of pages. If you didn't know where to go looking for them, you'd never see them. But the language went as follows. If the secretary determines that the use of a market mechanism under subsection H is ineffective, the secretary shall pursue additional measures. <laughs> you could find that if you wanted to read slow through several hundred pages of legalese. If you didn't know exactly where to go, you'd never know it was there. And in the aftermath one Sunday, Secretary Paulson summoned the leaders of the nation's nine largest banks. He said, be here tomorrow, be here Monday. They came to his office the next day. The chairwoman of the FDIC was there. They were placed at a conference table in alphabetical order. Opposite them sat government, Secretary of the Treasury, Chairman of the Fed, Chairwoman of the FDIC. The government informed the bankers, this is not a negotiation exercise. We are not here to discuss it. We're not here to negotiate. What you are going to hear are orders. The Treasury has tens of billions of dollars. We will become a shareholder in your banks. And when the bankers said, some of them said, we don't want the money. Just stay clear of us. We don't want it. They were told, you will take the money. Each of them was given a sheet of paper describing the terms. Just one sheet. Terms were described rather briefly. They were told, you will sign this before you leave town. And all nine of them did. 
For $125 billion, the U.S. government had bought into nine of our largest banks. And the rest is history. Now, where does that leave us? We have effectively created one trillion new dollars, with trillions more in lethally dangerous debt on the way. Now, the question I pose to you is where are we going to get the money from to pay that debt? We're now spending far beyond what we can hope to raise in taxes. So pray tell, from where does the money come? As a tax trial attorney, I couldn't help noticing that Congress is pondering tax hikes. Add them up and they look like this. Including the proposed surtax on single people earning over $280,000 a year. And before it's over, that number will come down. Most of whom are small business people who provide jobs. Add to that hikes in capital gains, increased payroll taxes, higher marginal income tax rates, which define the amount of money you pay at whatever tax level you are, add on other government expenses like health care, add on soaring state tax rates, as in New York and California, and you wind up with a tax burden at present computed. And I'm not sure it won't go higher, but at presently the potential tax burden reaches 58%. And even that won't pay the national mortgage. What I'm afraid we're doing, and I'm not blaming anybody, we're just in a mess here, and good people with good intentions trying to solve the problem are struggling with it. And Ellen White once said what they are struggling in vain to put the economy on a more secure basis. I'm not putting down on anybody. I'm just telling you the problem is significant. What I'm afraid we're doing is paying the house mortgage with this. Now, you can do that for a few months. I've had clients do it, but it don't last long, okay? You don't pay the house mortgage with the MasterCard. You have any idea, even if we raise taxes to pay off this debt, do you have any idea how long it takes to pay off a debt with taxes? Have any of you here noticed that on your telephone bill there was a subtle disappearance of a tax? There used to be a tax on your long-distance phone bill. It was there faithfully. Every month it arrived faithfully. It ain't there anymore. It's gone. You know why? Because the tax was put on long-distance telephone calls as a way to pay for the Spanish-American War. <laughs> which lasted all of what, a couple of weeks? <laughs> and we just now got the thing paid for. Do you have any idea how long it takes for taxes to pay down a debt? I'm afraid that um, a tax of 60% won't pay the debt I don't think our unborn great-grandchildren will get the debt paid down even at that tax rate. So, to finance our debt, we're going to have to do what? 
turn to foreign lenders, principally whom? China and the Middle East, which leads to a couple of problems. Number one, any debtor is forever at the mercy of the lender, which may explain why we tolerate but do little to stop North Korean arms adventures and the launching of missiles by a nuclear North Korea over our ally Japan. It may also explain why with an emerging nuclear Iran, we find there is little we're able to do, or at least willing to do. We need the Chinese now fully as badly as they need us. They need our market, but we need their investment. Point number one, the debtor is at the mercy of the lender. Point number two, what if, and I repeat, what if, our foreign lenders finally decide, as did Bear Stearns lenders, that we're no longer a worthy credit risk. What then? What happens when a nation prints money it doesn't have? The process is called monetizing the debt. You turn your debt into newly created money. And history suggests that the process is dangerous. Didn't work with Rome when they began devaluing the denarius. By the time Rome fell, the denarius, which had once been 100% silver, was down to 0.02% silver. Didn't work with France in the late, eight, in the late 1700s. A real estate bubble there uh, caused a, a collapse of the French uh, currency, and uh, the result was the French Revolution. But more spectacularly of all, it didn't work in post-World War I Germany. Weimar Germany had this huge unpayable debt. I mean, the victorious allies did something really stupid, and they imposed on, on the Germans a debt they couldn't pay, so Germany did the, the only thing they could think of, and they just turned the printing presses on and began printing the mark. Now, as a result, in April of 1919, for $1, you could buy 12 marks. Pretty good exchange rate, isn't it? By November of 1921, $1 would buy 263 marks. Pretty good time to get on a ship and go over and, you know, have a nice holiday in Germany, huh? By August of 1923, $1 would buy 4.62 million marks. And four months later, in December of the same year, it was $1 to 4.2 trillion marks. That's currency collapse. And uh, finally, the mark got so, so worthless, they wouldn't print it on both sides of the paper. It wasn't worth the ink. Now, the same thing happened in Argentina, you know, in the light, late 1980s, and they ran into a problem. They ran out of paper. There just wasn't enough paper to print all of the Argentinian currency, and they went into a catastrophic currency de decline. Now, when currency devalues like that, those are circumstances where when you go to a restaurant, you pay for your meal before you order 
because if you wait till after you've eaten, the price has gone up. <laughs> it's funny, but we're laughing with tears in our eyes, aren't we? Uh, the story goes of Heinrich, you know, in post-World War I Germany. He gets his wheelbarrow full of marks to go down and buy a loaf of bread. And along comes Gerhard, his friend. Uh, they're walking together, commiserating. And Heinrich finally comes to the bakery and just sets the wheelbarrow down and walks inside. And Gerhard says, Heinrich, you're not going to leave that out there. Somebody will steal it. He says, nobody will steal that. It's too worthless. He was right. When he came back, the money was there in a heap. Somebody had stolen the wheelbarrow. Okay. <laughs> Currency devaluation. Let me show you something here. Here is a $10 bill, United States $10 bill from 1922. Great big thing, isn't it? And look on the back. Notice what color it is. What color is it? Orange, kind of their best effort to recreate gold. Why was it that color? Because on the front it says, this certifies that there has been deposited in the Treasury of the United States of America $10 in gold coin, payable to the bearer on demand. This thing stood for something with inherent value in it. Well, the time went by. By the way, right after FDR took office, it became very obvious this gold standard wasn't going to work. What did the government do? Pull gold out of circulation, made it a federal crime to even own it. They paid something like $20 an ounce. A couple of weeks later, they resold it for $35. Here's another piece of American money. This one looks kind of similar, only it was issued in 1953. Easy come, easy go. This one says, this certifies there is on deposit in the Treasury of the United States, $5 in silver payable to the bearer on demand. Back in those days, you could still go and get something with intrinsic value. And then we, we completely severed, you know, the dollar from any uh, gold valuation, whatever. We let it float. Now, current money simply says Federal Reserve note. What's a note? Promissory note. I-O-U. <laughs> okay. Now, I'm not putting down on it entirely. There are reasons why there, it's, it's advisable in a, in a normal, decent economy to be able to, to regulate the money supply. Uh, you know, if you tie everything to gold, there's only so much gold, and if you have a very vibrant, growing economy, you can run out of enough money to really fund that. So I don't want to oversimplify and say that everything went south when we went off the gold standard. That, that's just, you know, that's antediluvian. But what I am saying is that what we're dealing with now is nothing more than somebody's confidence in that piece of paper issued by our government. When confidence disappears, what happens? Well, let's go back to Germany. Germany was issuing pieces of paper basically asking people to have confidence in the Weimar Republic. When the German people lost confidence, when their currency collapsed, what happened? Now, we're not talking about people, uh, you know, of inferior ability. The German people are wonderful people. They're industrious. They're bright. The German people can produce Einstein, even though they were stupid enough to throw him out. They can produce Bach. They can produce Martin Luther. They can produce wonderful works of music. They did produce the first cruise missile, the first ballistic missile. Their technology started both the Soviet and U.S. space programs. They're bright, intelligent people. But those bright, intelligent people, confronted with the collapse of their currency, did what? 
went for a guy with a mustache. There is the risk. You debase a nation's currency and you imperil its survival and you create circumstances where a lamb-like beast can behave like a dragon. You following me? You have the circumstances, the raw materials for Revelation 13. We may pull out of this uh, current economic recession. I sincerely hope we do. I deal every day of the week with clients who are really hurting from this thing. I see good people hurting. I pray the recovery works. I don't like to see people get hurt that bad. But even if we do pull out of this one, may I suggest that this crisis has like a tidal wave, like a tsunami, washed onto the beach of history so much debris that we will never ever be really be the same again. It has changed our lives. It's left government and labor unions in significant control of major sectors of our society. We have seen a tectonic shift in the global economy. Our manufacturing has gone offshore. Our service industries have gone offshore. Now foreigners who are at best only casually friendly to the United States, if not hostile, are funding our standard of living. It ain't a user-friendly world. Meanwhile, the government has bought control of banking, manufacturing, and quite possibly the healthcare system. Now, do you see any end-time implications here? Point number two of my presentation this afternoon I don't know where the current economic crisis will go, but there is at least reason for concern. America's veering in a new direction. And let me put it this way. We have voted in a new administration with very different approach to solving our national problems or addressing them. Think about what would happen if, if a very liberal approach to national problems fails to solve the problem, what happens? The American people are not notoriously patient. When it starts to hurt, we start to scream, and it doesn't take long. And what worries me is that if a very liberal approach fails to solve the problems we face today, you will see Americans veer right back across the center line to an ultra-right perspective, probably grounded in religion. And if you do, you're looking at the end of time. Just a few weeks ago, I met uh, with, I was in a meeting in L.A. with key government and banking leaders uh, there. Basically, the government's very concerned about money laundering and the way our, our $100 bill is the medium of exchange for uh, drug dealers and, and terrorists all over the world. So they're trying to get money laundering stopped. And they had a high-level meeting in L.A., at which, among others, was the lady who heads the federal enforcement program against money laundering for the western United States. She's a Danish-American gal, very nice lady. When the, thing, when the program was over, I couldn't resist it. I went up to her and greeted her in Danish, you know, Godak, Vordenstortetil. Uh, her face just lit up like a, a, a lantern. She replied, Can you speak Danish? I have a friend for life at the IRS, okay? <laughs> and for a tax attorney, it doesn't hurt to have a friend in the IRS. 
Anyway, after the meeting, we were discussing this with a major bank leader in L.A. and the guy who was, who was retired as head of criminal enforcement for the IRS for Southern California. We were discussing the problem of money laundering. We came to the collective conclusion the only real way we're going to get a handle on that is to go to a high-tech, tamper-proof national identity card. The only way you really get a handle on the problem. You just take paper money out of circulation, you digitize everything, and every transaction you engage in goes through this thing so that at the cash register, they have a record of how much you paid, what you bought, when and where. They also know if you're supposed to be in this country or whether you're here illegally. And if you lose this card, you don't exist. Now, is there anything wrong with this technology? No. There's nothing morally wrong with that technology. We've surrendered to it years ago with our credit card system. What worries me about the national identity card, which I pointed out uh, to my interlocutors at that banking meeting, was that we have set in motion a choke point where government can absolutely control the buying and behavioral habits of the American people. Now, thinking of that, my mind reflected back on an old text of scripture that we've often quoted. And he causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive something that he might, and that they might not buy or sell, save he that had what? The name, the mark, or the number. Where are we? Well, my take on this thing is I don't know where the current economic crisis is going. I hope we pull out of it. I wish the government success. But I think we've entered a vortex that could irreversibly ultimately lead to the advent. The forces aren't yet extreme, but they're noticeable. You can feel them. You can feel the centrifugal force of this vortex beginning to operate. It is as if, to use a met another metaphor, you can feel the first wind of a rising storm. And as we close, I want to reflect very briefly on the incredible blessing of being part of a spiritual movement blessed with advice from heaven. Today, millions of people are at mercy of a system to which they've made themselves utterly dependent. I mean, they're crowded into cities that are just increasingly vulnerable to terrorism, to natural calamity, to economic forces, to sources of supply for the necessities of life. The other night, Rich, my son and I, were sitting at a sidewalk cafe in Venice Beach, California, in a small piece of this world where you can still see Bentleys and Ferraris, and where if you sit there long enough, you will see Hollywood personalities. They're there. That's where they go. We were sitting at a sidewalk cafe, having a bowl of soup served in a bowl made out of bread. Go figure. And we looked across the street at these beautiful people, and Rich commented to me. He said, it's so strange. They don't realize how vulnerable they are. Anything goes wrong. Natural disaster, interruption of the supply of water or power or food. And the transportation system clogs up, and these people are stuck here, and they don't even know. <laughs> and then I think of Ellen White's warning, those who stay in the cities will be what? Trapped in them. Well, I got that one solved. I got a boat in Marina Del Rey. If the freeways fill up, I'm heading out to sea. Okay. <laughs> Ellen White had some pretty good advice that is now being discovered by non-believers on how to minimize risk and exposure in a declining world. And what was it? Country living. <laughs> again and again, the Lord has instructed that our the Lord has instructed 
that our people are to take their families away from the cities into the country where they can raise their own provisions, for in the future the problem of buying and selling will be very serious. Well, we hit hyperinflation. Believe me, buying and selling will get serious. Her advice, get out of the cities into rural districts where you will be free. Ministry of Healing, instead of dwelling where only the works of men can be seen, where turmoil and confusion bring weariness, go where you can look upon the works of God, find rest of spirit and beauty and peace of nature, and where apart from the distractions of city life you can give your children your companionship. And finally, the one that screams, the text that screams, that's now being rediscovered by non-believers. Fathers and mothers who possess a piece of land and a comfortable home are kings and queens. And you're seeing it now in the secular press. Echoes of those prophetic words can be seen in news stories and op-ed pieces. Simply by following the few passages of advice that I've, I've, I've read, we could have avoided a thousand perils. And as I travel day after day during the week to my office on the corner of Wiltshire Boulevard and the free 110 freeway, I think about our quiet country home to which I go on weekends with Joellen here. And it's good soil and the joy of dinner less than an hour out of the garden, of starry nights and clear air during the daytime, a place Joe and I got 30 years ago, not because we were smart enough to see 2009 coming. We weren't. We simply chose to believe something called the spirit of prophecy. Amen. How many dangers, both spiritual and physical, we could lessen if only, if only, if only. And as I cross L.A. morning and evening, I reflect every time I do, I wouldn't trade our country place for all of Los Angeles. <laughs> so in closing, I want to say it's time to wake up to rediscover the wealth of truth that God has, has embedded in the Advent message, to quit wondering whether we really had it right. Ladies and gentlemen, yes, we had it right, and it's still right. Amen. And more than that, it's worth sharing. Amen. And that's why we're here at ASI. Thanks and good evening. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.